You're listening to episode 372 of the New World Order. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode we're going to look at an overview of container-like history, and then we're going to talk about a code jam that I partook in over the weekend. The first topic comes from DeepGeek, an email from DeepGeek. He, he emailed me uh, a little while ago and was listening to the previous episode about uh, the LXC Linux container, and he said... In his email, the variety of sandboxing, to use the most general term, options is bewildering. An update on it would be appreciated, but I found a link I know you will find interesting. And then he gives me a link, which I'm going to look at in a moment. I mean, I've already looked at it, but we're going to look at it together, you and I, dear listener. He says, um... He also found a great tool called FireJail. It is a front-end to Linux kernel built-in sandboxing tool with a comprehensive set of configuration files for all kinds of applications a person can find already installed. This means that uh, I can type in FireJail Firefox and it will invoke FireJail with a preset configuration for Firefox and spawn a jailed process for the same. That's really, really cool. I've not looked at FireJail yet. I do, I have it on my list to look at. It is definitely something that really, I mean, if, if for no other reason, it just sounds fascinating. But um, it, it, it's a very cool idea, and that kind of instantaneous jailing of, of applications or sandboxing of applications, that does seem awfully useful, uh, at least in theory. I mean, I'd have to look at it further to really know just how full it, it would be. But the blog post that he sent me is a place called blog.aquasec.com. That's A-U-A-S-E-C. And it is a brief history of containers from 1970s Cheroot to Docker 2016. And if you go to that exact URL, that is blog.aquasec.com, and then the phrase I just said, except instead of spaces, put dashes, you'll find this blog. But I'll also put a show, uh, a link in the show notes. So this is a really nice this is a, a great little spelling out of the history, and, and it's it's really an easy read, so I do highly recommend going there and, and just kind of scanning through it real quick. It's it's headline, or, you know, subtitle, paragraph, subtitle, paragraph, subtitle, paragraph. So it's, it's just one, it's like a bullet point list with a, with a couple of sentences explaining the concept. So it shouldn't take too long. I say that, of course, knowing deep down that I'm probably going to have commentary on Almost every single one of them. Shakedown 1979. Cool kids never have the time for Cheroot. That's during the development of Unix version 7, apparently. I didn't even know there was a version 7, to be honest. I mean, I never really thought about it. Like, many Linux users probably kind of stopped caring after version 5. But version 7, 1979, uh, had this new thing called Cheroot. Uh, introduced, and we've we've talked a little bit about Cheroot uh, in when we were going through the uh, A series of packages in Slackware. Uh, there were a couple of Cheroot-related utility like Pivot, but uh, the Cheroot was apparently introduced in Unix version seven, and it was, I guess, truly, as this blog suggests, was kind of the the start of it all. And the idea was that you would change the root directory of a process and its children to some other location on your file system. This was the the start of process isolation. So in 2000, which is kind of interesting to me, because think about it, 1980, 1979, call it 1980, to 2000. I mean, that's a good 20 years. Basically no significant, um, I don't want to say progress because that makes it sound like there was a trajectory. So more like just no significant, I guess, thought or, or development on this concept. But yeah, in 2000, FreeBSD Jails, uh, was released and this was something that, that was very much on on this trajectory. I think this almost, in a way, started the trajectory, possibly. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. But if you're looking at it just at a, on a list, it seems like from 2000 and onward, we're, onward, we're going to see a lot more activity than 1980 to 2000. Jails allows administrators to partition the the system, for the processes, into smaller mini-systems called jails, and you could do things like you can assign an IP address for each of those little systems. So, I mean, it really kind of sounds a lot like a container. Or, generically, as DeepGeek points out, it sounds like sandboxing, and, and that is basically what it is. So in 2001, there was something called the Linux vServer. I'm assuming that stands for virtual server. It was a jail-like mechanism that could apparently partition resources like your file system, like your network addresses and your memory on a computer system. It's essentially a patch 
set that you could get for the Linux kernel at the time. Again, this was 2001, well before I was aware of, of computer, you know, how computers worked, much less that, that Linux was, was a thing that I had any interest in. And it apparently sort of fizzled out in 2006, so I've got no experience there. 2004, Solaris container. This I vaguely am aware of because I was running Open Solaris for a while, not way back in 2004 because it didn't exist. Open Solaris, uh, I don't know, in the 2010s, and there was a thing having to do with zones, and that's what Solaris containers is kind of all about. Zones provide you points on your file system, apparently, where you can sort of, well, it's, it's sort of like snapshots and clones from ZFS. I don't know how, how, um, I guess, I don't know how partitionable zones were, and I haven't looked it up, so I can't really comment, but apparently this was a thing, Solaris containers in 2004. 2005, this is where I start to come in, uh, really. So this is OpenVZ, that's Open Vertuzzo. This was all the rage. When I first started Linux in 2000, let's call it 2006 to 2008, any time in there where I'm starting to really investigate this side of computing that I never knew it existed, and, and indeed sort of discovering that I was actually interested in computing. This was all over the podcasts, as I recall. I mean, the point, the, the, the fact that I recall the name OpenVZ must mean that somebody was talking about it, because I don't, I wasn't looking into virtualization at that time beyond um, whatever I had, you know, on a, on a work computer so that I could run Linux um, at work. OpenVZ, though, is an operating system level virtualization technology. Again, patched kernel, you have to, this wasn't something that, that, that got into the mainline kernel, but you could get a set of patches, patch your kernel, and suddenly you get virtualization and process isolation and resource management and checkpoints. I don't know what that even means, um, but apparently it was a big deal. I remember hearing about it. People would talk about it a lot and try to explain to everyone who was kind of steeped already at that time in this idea of, well, this is what a virtual machine is. It's a it's a, a pretend box inside of your box, and it has to start with the motherboard and the firm, the BIOS, and it got it has to have the the fake CPU and the fake memory and all this other stuff. People were steeped in that already in 2004. That was already sort of where people's understanding of what a virtual machine was was. And OpenVZ had kind of an uphill battle trying to explain to people why why it. it had something better to offer. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming it's better. I, I don't know. It sa- sounds like it's more lightweight. But I think the problem, you know, really for for the everyday casual user, and maybe even for the admin who who would have to do this several times over potentially, but it's that patching the kernel thing. You know, that is that's kind of a big deal. I mean, it, it, honestly, it's not. Uh, for many many years, I patched my kernel for. Um, better multimedia performance. I had tutorials about that in uh, on slackermedia.info. It's it's not a big deal, but if that's what you have to do every time you want to update your kernel or or every time you get a new computer or every time you um you provision a computer as an admin, then that can probably well, it's something you have to figure out, something you have to to account for. 2006 process containers. Now this is a big deal. You already know about this, but by a different name. This was launched by Google in 2006. For the record, I didn't know that was by Google. It was designed for limiting, accounting, and isolating resource usage like CPU, memory, disk I/O, network, that sort of thing of any uh, any number of processes. It was codenamed Control Groups. That is C groups, and a year later it merged into the mainline kernel. That's 2.6.24 specifically. So that's where C groups comes from, and you know about C group because we've talked about C groups. We've talked about it when we were talking about namespaces. We were talking um, about how processes uh, like NSEnter and Unshare. We we got to see a little bit of of C groups managing um, the the sort of the the manipulation of, of process. Okay, 2008 LXC, that's Linux containers. We just talked about this in the previous episode, so you know all about it now. You even know how to use it. So do I. It's great. Um, it, it was implemented in 2008 using C groups and Linux namespaces, and um, it works, you know, on the kernel because it's got, the kernel's got C groups now, so it doesn't matter. So LXC, big deal, 2008, still around. Uh, and, and I mean, in fact, LXC, and you'll see as we keep going through this list, LXC was um, by no means a, a a small player in in this process. In fact, in 2011, the next one on this list, we've got something called Warden, which I had never ca- heard before. It's from Cloud Foundry. They started Warden in 2011 using LXC. Now they they eventually 
implemented the container part of their own, but but LXC was what they started out with to it when designing Warden. And apparently Warden was something that could isolate environments on any operating system running as a daemon and providing an API for container management. So it sounds vaguely advanced, really, for, for what, you know, for, for the time. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of it. But I mean, there's no reason I would have heard of it. But I'm just saying, I'd heard of OpenVZ, and there was not really a good reason for me to have heard of that. I had not, not heard of War. 2013, apparently, literally, this thing is called LMCTFY. Definitely never heard of this one. It, the, that stands for Let Me Contain That For You. L-M-C-T-F-Y. That just does not roll off the tongue for me. It um, it was an open source version of Google's container stack. So applications through this interface could be made container aware, and then they could create and manage their own little sub-container. Apparently, uh, Google started contributing core LMC-TFY concepts to libcontainers, so they kind of almost adopted it by way of duplication, and I don't know how, how friendly that takeover was, but, you know, I don't know if LMC-TFY thought that they'd done, were, you know, were happy with this, because maybe they've, you know, some, there's, there's a way of, of introducing technology by not contributing to a project, and instead making your own thing, and then watching while your competitor adapts their behavior to silence you. That's just that's, that's true. You you can you can look at it in several places, and it is definitely a technique that um, has worked. So it doesn't always work, but it has worked in the past. And I don't know if that was LMCTFY's strategy or whether that's just how it ended up. Either way, apparently from this from this one paragraph in this random blog post, um, that's what happened here. Libcontainer adopted a bunch of the LMCTFY uh, standards and practices and ideas, and is now part of the Open Container Foundation. And so everyone wins. Docker launched in 2013. Now, for you and me, and for a lot of people. Docker was the beginning, right? That was the false bottom. We we thought that Docker started the container craze. I don't know that I ever actually thought that, but and I don't know how many of you actually thought that, but like if you if you kind of go unchecked or if you're just casual casual conversation, someone at a party says, first of all, I don't know why you're a, at a party, I don't go, but let's say you were and then someone says, hey, I've been hearing a lot about this container thing, can you tell me about it? You'd probably go far as back as back as, as Docker. You wouldn't go all the way back to 1970 and say, yeah, yeah, there was this thing, it was Docker and it was really hot and then it got bought out or something and now we've got Podman or whatever. Whatever you would say. But Docker 2013, it kind of exploded in popularity because everyone had to have Docker, right? I mean, that was the big deal. It was huge. Containers were everywhere. Everyone was really excited about it. Suddenly, everyone wanted to know what Kubernetes was, and everyone to know how to run a Docker container, and everyone else wanted to know why their favorite server application was now shipping to them, or you know, being a down—it was downloadable as a container. Why couldn't they get into the container? Why couldn't they get it back out once they were in it? How do they really even know if they're ever in the container? How do they configure it if every time the container stops, all of the configuration, all of the data in it goes away? You know, the the whole the whole points of confusion about containers, that was it all came to a head with Docker and I don't know what it was. I, was it the mass adoption that got the the strong reaction or was it the 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 excitement over Docker that caused both the adoption and the and the reaction. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure what exactly clicked when Docker happened in 2013. But boy, were people ready for it. And um, I I can't say now that the th- sort of the threat of Docker is over. And I say the threat of Docker is over because the, I mean this is it's hard to comp- it's hard to express if you're not if you're not aware of it. I'll try to express it in such a way that it will surprise you. But like let's call it nine months ago, Docker was at the top. They were valued at a lot of money. People thought that they were good. They, they, they were unstoppable. It was Docker, right? And people had a problem with Docker. Everyone had a problem with Docker because they were a little bit open core, right? They were like, uh, yeah, we're open source-ish. We're friendly to open source. You know the lines that they all that they all say. And and yet there were components there that were not truly open. And so people had a problem with that. But they were they were poised. They were they were big, they were poised to do lots of great things, well, exciting business type thing, and they, um, I think they, they some, they somehow branched off into two separate entities, there was like the, the Moby entity and the Docker entity, and I could never keep track of which was which, it was quite strange, and then all of a sudden I think they got bought out 
by someone. They just got bought out and just sort of... I mean, they still exist. You can still go to Docker Hub. You can still go to Docker, I, I guess, like the website or whatever. But they're just not... They're not a... They're, they're not in the game anymore. They just fell out. Um, and there are still remnants of Docker. I mean, aside from the fact, again, I'm speaking of them as if though they're dead. Technically, they're not dead. But if functionally, they're dead. And, and there are still remnants of Docker. For instance, Docker files are still... That's what you still call the sort of the definition of a container. It's, a, it's often delivered to you as a Docker file. So there you go. There's a, a remnant of it. And the command is sometimes, in some settings, still Docker. So th- there's... There are these echoes of Docker, but I can't tell you how how quickly, you know, it's just like, here. here's what it is. I went to bed one night thinking Docker was going to eat my lunch, and then I woke up in the morning and Docker didn't exist anymore. That's That was how dramatic it was. It was really, really strange. Okay. Aside from all of that, it all continues, right? There's there's uh, Docker, there's Kubernetes, which will manage all of those con- all of those funky little containers that you're building with whatever tool you are using. There's Podman, Podman.io. That's the agentless Docker replacement, the tr- truly open source, um, no no daemon required uh, container uh, system. There's OpenShift, the sort of web portal uh, for your. I mean, it's not just a web portal. There there are commands as well. I guess you could call it almost your your operating system um, for you know that that would be your desktop uh, in the cloud I guess so there, yeah there are a bunch bunch of tools dealing with everything that sort of the craze of containers in the data center has has spawned and that brings us up to to today really I mean I could go on and on and just start talking about things like I mean there there's interesting things too I mean for for a couple of years there you could go to any tech show and it was just a rotating cast of people trying to get into this space and and it was yeah it was an it was a weird and exciting time and it still is it is very exciting still like this is not this is not settled by any means this is a, an ongoing story that we're all sort of experiencing together especially if you're in in sort of the sysadmin community you are you are living this every day um if you are not though just know that this idea of well how are major distributed systems going to be managed that's that's what everyone's trying to figure out right now and it's interesting because you see you see this container idea, or as he points out, sandboxing idea. This sandboxing idea is happening lots of places. You see it on the, well, you see it on your mobile phone. You see it on, sometimes you see it in your browser. Um, sometimes you see it uh, on your desktop. I mean, think about Flatpak, uh, probably Snap, although I haven't really looked at that technology all that much due to it, um, due to the distribution model being closed. Um, app images, uh, all of these things are kind of, they're, they're sandboxes just for your desktop, and that's, who 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 saw that coming? I mean, that's that's interesting. Like, is it useful? Yeah, it probably is useful. Is it uh, troublesome sometimes? Yes, yeah, sometimes there are weird permission errors that you run into because the rest of the system doesn't understand. You know, there's no portal. How, how do you get into that container? That's that's I guess the classic question. How do you get back out? That's another question. A very good question because there are things that you don't want to get out, and there are things that you want to be able to get in. So it's it's a it's a big mess right now. Um, and of course you've got really, really crazy experimental things going on like Fedora Silverblue, which is a Fedora system that is immutable. And then the the way that ideally you're supposed to develop on it, you create these toolboxes, which are sandboxed uh, development environments. And when you install applications, you're doing it as flat packs. Everything's just a container. Everything's in a sandbox. It's It's nutty. It's really uh, very surprisingly cool, but also it does feel very tenuous right now. I I feel like we're still, you know, we're still in that sort of awkward phase of still trying to figure out exactly what the landscape looks like before we venture too far out into it. And like any, uh, like all technology, you know, I I imagine some of these things are going to be they're going to turn out to be very, very useful, while others turn out to be not so useful, and 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 others will will be maybe in between. But they'll they'll right now they're just too much trouble to to use, and so they'll they'll get ironed out. And you know, you, you look at things like Pulse Audio, which a lot a lot of people I know still don't quite trust because, frankly, I don't think they actually understand it. But Pulse Audio in the early days it was quite 
quite frightening. Like, it was not very good. Um, there were things that you would have to do. There were hacks that you would have to step around in order to get Pulse Audio to work properly or not to interfere with your system. And it was an uncomfortable time. And I remember at the time I had a friend who kept telling me, Pulse Audio is really, really good. Like, this is, this is an absolute must. It is really good. And I just couldn't see it. I mean, I didn't, I did not like it. I trusted this person, so I thought, okay, well, it's it's apparently really good. Why isn't it working exactly how they're advertising? It's it's, it's very odd, and I feel like that's kind of where we're at with containers right now. Very 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 good thing. Very very good for security, I guess. Maybe very good for for this, or very very good for updating and upgrading um, and portability and all these other things that, that it's good for but also really kind of not easy to use yet. So, yeah, we'll get there. Um, and I think with a lot of technology, sometimes the key, or a key anyway, one strategy is, if you can, if you can um, I say, afford it, but what I, you know, if, if you have the luxury of, of doing it, is just kind of to, to learn it from afar, learn it from a distance, learn it on that spare system, whether it's uh, virtualized or otherwise, to where, you know, it's not going to hold you up if you can't figure something out, but at least you know what you have to learn next. And I think that's one one reason that I am quite enjoying Flatpaks as much as I am uh, on Slackware, because it's not perfectly integrated with the system. I, I'll say that uh, Flatpaks tend to be a little bit more integrated on on um, on my rel system, for instance. So it, it's not perfect, but but getting in there and looking around and seeing how the flat packs are built and how they're how what kind of options are provided to open special ports for for different purposes. Um, it's really interesting to see that. And eventually, I'm I'm assuming, um, you know, if if it, if that's if we're going towards an immutable OS and with flat packs on top, that'd be great. I, I would I would feel comfortable with that having used flat packs to whatever degree I use flat packs. That's a lot of thoughts on sandboxing. I think gen- just very generally speaking, we can agree that sandboxing in principle is a really handy tool to have in your toolkit. I mean, when you need it, it's a good thing to have. You do want to have that available if you need it. Now, whether we or not, you know, how, how much we all need it, that's the diff- That's the question that we're all going to have to just find the answer to that one as a community together. And anyway, it's open source, so we'll have choice ultimately either way. If you're the, if you're one of the ten, you know, the ten or the hundred or or whatever people who don't need the thing, that's fine. There'll, there'll always be the alternative, which is quite comforting, I think. I think that's uh, one of those features of open source that we all take a lot of comfort in. Okay, let's go get a cup of coffee. We'll come back and we'll talk about video games. I have Amsterdam coffee. I, I don't. I keep forgetting the exact name. This one I made in the plunger, or as we used to say in America, the French press, and it is really good. I have got my grind a lot better now. The the grind of the coffee I've managed to do um, much better than I had been for a while. I was I don't have a coffee grind, um, and that's partly because well it's it's threefold. One because I don't want to spend money on a coffee grind. Okay, that's just that's true. Two I was at an op shop and I saw a used coffee grinder uh, several days no several months ago. And I didn't get it. I don't remember why I didn't get it. It was probably like $1 more than I thought it should be or something silly like that. I didn't get it. No, I remember why I didn't get it. Sorry. I didn't get it because I have this idea, this dream, that I'm going to find a coffee grinder that is hand-powered. I don't want an electric coffee grinder. I don't I don't know if that's a good idea, but that's how I feel about it. I just think it would be neat to have a coffee grinder that was hand-powered instead of electric. So between all of those things, I've not gotten a coffee grinder. And what I do, I do have a food process. So I put my coffee beans in the food process, and I, I grind it up as as you would, you know, I don't know, tomato or whatever you put in a processor. The, the problem with that was that really... It's not a... It isn't dedicated to coffee beans. It has a larger surface area bigger blades, all those other things that that a coffee grinder would not have to deal with. And so I just have to grind it for a lot longer, like a lot longer. Uh, I just, 
I just lean on it for a long time until the the grind is appropriate. That's what I've been doing, and it it is great. It's really good. This is wonderful coffee. It has this kind of um, earthy flavor uh, in the in the background, and it's just such a pleasant pleasant cup of coffee. So that's what I've been drinking uh, lately, and it's been very good. And it got me through the weekend, which uh, was a particularly I guess sort of busy weekend. Because as it turns out, it was the weekend of the Open Jam. The Open Jam is a game jam. And if you don't know what a game jam is, which, you know, you, you don't necessarily... I'm not saying that you necessarily should know what a game jam is. I'm just saying that um, if you don't know, then um, it is a, for instance, a hackathon. Or you might call it a sprint. You might call it, well, a jam. Or a dare. So... It, it, it's one of these, you know, or a 48-hour whatever fest. It's one of those things where people decide rather arbitrarily, I guess, that for 48 hours or, or whatever it is, it's probably it's a, a little bit more than 48 hours, actually, because I think they started on uh, U.S. Friday afternoon until, I think, the end of Sunday, possibly. I'm not sure. The dates were very hard for me to understand because they were speaking in whatever local time zone they were thinking, and... All I could tell really was when it started, because they're, they've got a little counter on their website of how many more days you have left. And yet, after all that, I still kind of got confused and thought and thought I was a day off or something. But anyway, point is, I decided that this this event, which is, again, just... It, it's a, an arbitrary decision to get on the internet with a bunch of other people and code some stuff together. Or not together, rather, but at the same time. And that's really all it is. Um, so I first encountered the Open Jam back in 2018, I think. A- at least in person. I might have heard of it before, but but in person I, f- I, I encountered it at a conference, at the All Things Open conference in 2018. And they had arcade cabinets there. So obviously you're going to go to the arcade cabinet. And I... I don't remember how I realized what I was playing was like something that someone had coded in 48 hours, but that's what it was. Just a big collection of open source games that people had coded over the course of, I don't know, 48 or, you know, whatever, however many hours it was, two days, three days, whatever. And and then they collect them at the end and, and take them on the road or, or put them on the website. And, and that's all it is. Now, in 2019, I thought, I should do this. I should do the Open Jam. Seems like it would be fun. So I sat down on the weekend of the Open Jam, uh, which I probably would have been around the same time last year as it is this year, and I um, I, I started, I, I, I sort of started taking some stabs at some game written in Lua. Didn't exactly have a clear idea of what I was going to write. I had some really interesting ideas, or I thought they were interesting. And in the end, I think I, I found out that it, that they were a little bit over-complex. And I'll get, I'll get to that in a minute. So that was last year. This year, I decided, why not give it a go again? And I'll, I'll get to more about what actually what actually sort of pushed me over the edge uh, this, this weekend in a minute. But I, I do kind of want to just talk about in general, some of the lessons that I learned from this experience, because it was, it was, and it was a, it was a better than expected experience, which I'll, I'll explain also in a moment, or maybe right now, heck. So when you hear about the open jam, depending on your disposition, you think either, oh man, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to get online. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to talk to them. And we're going to all talk about code. And then we're going to start coding. And I guess we'll probably talk about what we're coding while we're coding somehow. And then we'll all finish our games and we'll do virtual high fives and we'll be best friends. Or you just think, oh, this sounds weird. Why do I have to, why do I need the other people if, like, I'm not going to be coding with the other people. And even if I was, what are we going to do? Open up a text editor and code, like, at the same time? Like, how does that work? Or, or then you go in and you think, well, okay, so I need a, I need music for my game. So where do I, how do I get someone to sign up? You know, like, where's the, who's the coordinator here? What, how does, how do I make sense of all this? I think I had a little bit of both expectations, to be honest. I kind of thought, okay, well, I'm going to go in and someone's going to greet me at the door and they'll show me to, and of course I'm talking virtually here, right? Both years, like last year and this year, I just kind of thought someone will be there to coordinate and sort of lead me through the process or something or, or, or sort of check in on me or something. I don't know, something would happen. Um, and there wasn't really that. And I think that did kind of throw me off last year a little bit. You know, you kind of like, you're like, oh, okay, cool, open jam, it started, and then it's just silence, it's just you and a keyboard, and that's, that's the open jam, how exciting is that, not very, 
Uh, and you do kind of sort of get the sense that maybe if you were in an area where there were other people actually physically doing it, then maybe it would be cool to go into the office or, you know, in to the meetup point. And, you know, you bring your, I don't know, your pizza and your coffee and, and, and sit down and sort of say hi to everyone and then get all absorbed into into your into your work. I've been to events like that before, and that doesn't really work for me very well anyway. Um, while I do actually quite enjoy working in public, like I, I love a good cafe, um, going to a room full of other people programming tends to kind of bug me because people tend to sort of not be in sync. You know, like they, everyone's working except these two people who are talking about something very valid about code or something, but it's just distract. Or nobody's working except that one person in the corner and what gives them the right to work while everyone else is just goofing off. So it's, I don't know, it never feels quite right. And Open Jam feels like online it it feels like a um a very sort of a very separate thing is happening from what what you're doing like you're you're writing code and oh by the way over here in this chat application some people are sometimes talking about some stuff and then someone will come in and say hey i'm a musician does anyone need music for their thing or hey i'm a graphic person does anyone need graphics for their thing? and last year i didn't know how to deal with that this year i just kind of wrote that off i just thought well who cares? Don't need it. Gonna do my own thing. And then this year, I kind of felt like I was getting the rhythm of it. I, th- I kind of felt like, oh, I could have taken that person up on their offer for music. Or, oh, I could have taken that person up for gra- on their offer of graph. Um, in the end, it didn't matter because the going it alone thing was the was exactly what I needed. But I will just say, setting expectations, if you do open jam or any game jam online i guess you kind of know yourself there there are you know there's there's kind of a um it's a different crowd you know like i'm very familiar with certain crowds online hacker public radio people i'm pretty familiar with um people on mastodon i'm I'm relatively familiar with a, a certain group on mastodon getting into a different crowd full of different people it's just i don't know you, you have to kind of get the rhythm of of who everyone is and what they want to talk about and so on so it's I don't know. It's a little bit difficult, so don't go in thinking, unless you have a knack for it, don't go in there thinking, oh, you're going to meet a bunch of new people and they're going to, I don't know, drop knowledge on you or get excited about your idea or whatever, because that's not necessarily going to happen. It, it is it is an online event, uh, unless, well, this year, definitely online event. Um, in future years, there might be local meetups uh, if you're into that. Um, but essentially, what you're really feeding off of, the, the bottom line here, the starting point is the momentum. That's all it is for me, at least. Open jam, any j- a jam, forty-eight hour, whatever. It's it's just momentum. It's it's an excuse to say, hey, I am going to spend time on this project that probably any other weekend I would not dedicate time to. I'm going to do it this weekend. Why? Because there's the open jam, and I can turn in a game at the end and have have contributed an open source game to this to this event. How fun is that? Well. It's as fun as you make it, as it turns out. And it was a lot of fun. I just, I want to emphasize that strongly. It was actually a lot of fun. I had a lot more fun than I had expected based on last year. I kind of expected this year to kind of fizzle out halfway through and just kind of think, this isn't as much, this isn't doing anything for me uh, like I thought it would. But this year I just found a bunch of the right angles for myself to really enjoy what I was doing. What were those? Well, interestingly, I'm going to start out with a, a sort of an arguably a negative, and that is that I wrote my game, my little game, in Python and uh, using the Pygame Pi module. And I've got to say that um, if I had to do this again, I would arguably not do, I would not do that again. I, I, I knew that when I started, but there was already some um, I guess momentum um, to to the project. So what had happened was on Friday uh, afternoon, I started writing an article f- uh, about um, two-dimensional array and how to implement a two-dimensional array with Python and Py- uh, with Python. Now the and this was something that I was writing for someone else, so I it was a little bit of well I'm doing it in Python because that's kind of the that's the request. Someone specifically asked how to do this task in Python with a module that I did not know, and so I said I can show you how to do it with Python, and I will demonstrate how that's useful with um, oh I'll do it with Pygame, and I I chose that because I know Pygame quite well. I know it well enough anyway to to teach it to people. I've I've taught it to several different age groups for, over the course of several years, so I'm I'm 
I'm comfortable with that. So I said, I will use that to demonstrate this thing that you're asking about, which a two-dimensional array was the question. So if you don't know what a two-dimensional array is, dear listener, uh, an array, of course, is a, it's an array. We all know what an array is, right? It's, it's a bunch of things. Well, a one-dimensional array goes in one direction, like it'll go along an x-axis. You know, you can list it across the page with commas in between. That's one-dimensional array. It goes that way. I'm pointing to the right arbitrarily. Um, or it, you could list it in a bullet point list, right? And then it would go down the page on the y-axis. Two-dimensional array goes both ways. That's a two-dimensional two array. Not not that exciting, really. It's just a big, long term for, for something that we've all seen before. You know, it's, it's a spreadsheet. Two-dimensional array. So I was writing this two-dimensional array in Python and using Pygame library to visualize it for the per- for the person. And then I, I also used uh, the Pygame um, input system to click, uh, to, to enable someone to click on on entries of the two-dimensional array uh, so that you could kind of see, yes, each of these things is an individual object. It's not, this is not a graphic that we've just these aren't just pixels that we've painted. Well, they are pixels that we painted, but but it is an array of individual tile objects that are interactable independently. Turn one on, you can turn another one on, you can turn the other one off, the other one stays on. That's and that was my Friday afternoon, and then I I realized on the same day as I was finishing this up that the open jam was happening like now, like right now, and so I thought, well, you know, I've got this two-dimensional array which looks an awful like a lot like a a game board of some sort. It could be a chess game. It could be a checkers game. Sorry, a drafts game. Uh, it could be anything like that. So I could probably just add a couple couple of lines to this and turn it into a game and and submit that to Open Jam as my as my contribution. So the theme of the Open Jam this year was Airborne, A-I-R-B-O-R-N-E. I don't know if that's just a crass reference to uh, COVID-19 and the way that it is transmitted, or if that is something different, I'm not sure. But either way, COVID-19 kind of, that was what I, that was what registered with me. So I thought, okay, Airborne, that sounds like an infectious thing. That's something that is spreading something that you want to eliminate. Got it. So I, I decided, well, I could make this game with my little two-dimensional array. I could make it about eliminating the spread of something. So you, you the player would click on a tile maybe and deactivate the tile, and then another tile would light up somewhere else. And maybe based on a random roll or something, two two tiles instead of one tile could could um, could light up, and then the player has to deal with those really quickly, and so on. So that that was my initial thought. That didn't work out so well. The AI turned out to be, well, AI such as it is, right? The automated uh, disruption of the game state turned out to not... It was very clunky. Uh, I think I'm going to blame Python's random number generator, because honestly, I could sit here and roll D100 in my, uh, you know, physical die all day long, and I wouldn't get as many hits as the Python random number generator was getting. It was, it was crazy. So that didn't work out, and I was spending way too much time on it, and I thought, okay, let's, let's get rid of that idea, and then ultimately I, I came up with, with a different idea, which I'm not going to tell you, because part of the game is you discovering that. So if you, should you try to play the game, or should you go and play the game. I want you to be able to experience it without hearing any any hints from me. So that was how the game came about, and that is why it is in Python and Pygame. And as I said, ultimately, I think... Well, let's not use the word ultimately, because I've got more thoughts on this, actually, as a separate sort of list item. But um, in the end, that's the same as ultimately, isn't it? On the one hand, I don't think I would do that ever again. Python, Pygame... I mean, every time I write something in Python, I get angry about it, and the reason is because, um, well, lots of reasons. I'm gonna I'm gonna whittle it down to target. So your target, you, the delivery target for Python. You know, despite what Python says, and a lot of people say, um, Python is not what I would call um, gracefully cross-platform all the time. I mean, you can argue with me on that. I'm, I'm open to all arguments on this subject. In my experience, I have found that Python is not gracefully cross-platform. I have found lots of problems. None of those problems have I ever experienced with Java applications. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So if I wanted to target Linux, Windows, and Mac, then 
Python was a fair choice. Not the best choice, arguably, but a fair choice. There have been problems, I will say, on a couple of test test. Um, test a couple of play tests. People have reported some problems having to do with um, with, with media processing, uh, which I'm blaming Pygame on. Uh, but that that's just that's a thing. Uh, it could be user error as well in some cases. But if I was targeting also Android and iOS, then that's or and HTML5. Th- those are almost non-starters with Python plus Pygame. Now, had I thought about this sooner. Or, or in advance, rather, then I would have, I would have probably discovered that, and or it would have occurred to me, you know, that uh, if I do it here, then I won't, then I won't be able to target all of those platforms, and I would have used something different, like I don't know how to say it, Kivy, K-I-V-Y, dot org, Kivy, um, ostensibly is will will provide Android on no Python on Android uh, in in a very sort of very natural and effortless manner apparently beware.org that's b e e w a r e.org beware um, uses something called I think briefcase to, for for similar results so there are apparently you know projects out there that that sort of do that 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 take into account oh you want to target like everything well here you go to me Personally, I find it astonishing that Python, as popular as it is, doesn't kind of already have that baked in. I, I'm I'm not saying it it should. I'm just I'm honestly saying I'm surprised that it doesn't because it feels like Python is so darned popular that you would just kind of think there's going to be an easy way to do that. And even like Kivy and Beware, I kind of thought, and I could be wrong because I haven't looked too deeply into it, but I I kind of expected to be able to just kind of drop my files into Kivi or to Beware and to crank the little hand crank and, and to have the magic target targeted application or packages out the other side. But I, I, I'm gathering from reading up on it that that's not how it works. You, you kind of have to start in those um, within those projects in order to then take advantage of, of the things that they do to make themselves cross-platform. So yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a strong, strong argument here that what I would have done had I really thought about it in advance, and not even that far in advance, just if I'd if I'd slowed down for for three minutes to think about it, I think I would have opted for Java or for processing. Processing.org. I've mentioned it before. I think it's a subset of Java, or no, it's a Java library. Sorry. Um, and and it's amazing. I mean, it's it's exactly defined designed for the kind of thing that I was doing. And it out- outputs to. I mean, it's Java, so it outputs to everything, including Android. Don't know so much about iOS, but that honestly is a target that I don't really care that much about because I, I don't even know how you can I don't even know how to distribute to something to iOS I mean I, I think that is a process that Apple has successfully made difficult enough for me not to uh, find that worth the, the effort okay so uh, I guess the long and short of that musing was to choose your language carefully should you ever take part in a jam choose that language carefully and and think about it from the end forward or the end back however the end in relationship to where you are right now um you know think about those targets what do you want to target what do you what do you want to be able to output and and deliver to people um i i can almost guarantee you that it's not a raw python game that people have to install python manually and then know how to uh, install the requirement of pygame and then launch the game from the terminal that you don't want that that's, that's silly. You, that's nobody wants that. I didn't want that. I just wasn't thinking. So do think of that. If sh- should you ever do this, and heck, it doesn't even have to be a game jam. Obviously, I mean, just think about this when you're before you write your next application. I think Python, in in a in a weird way. Well, first of all, it has this reputation, right? That's got a very big reputation for. Oh my gosh, you can do everything, and look at all the things you can do with it, and this cross-platform, and all this other stuff. There are caveats there that nobody ever mentioned, but it's, it's also for for a lot of us geeks, I think. Um, there's kind of the reputation of Python for its scriptability as a scripting language, you know, and you kind of think, well, yeah, why wouldn't I do it as a Python project? Like that, that just makes sense. Well, yeah, it makes as much sense sometimes as doing something in Bash, you know, like it, it totally makes sense under under the exact correct circumstance. But if you if you if you if you want to get out there and, and sort of spread it around further than just this geek crowd that knows exactly what they're doing and is doing everything from the terminal and so on, uh, just rethink that maybe, or, or at least give it consideration. Okay, so the the complete antithesis to this is ultimately that time I mean it. 
ultimately, you know, if you're if you're staring down the the calendar and you see two days blocked out for a game jam, and at the end of those two days, you have to have something uploaded. the The right answer is to use whatever makes it possible. I th- I mean, I think there's an argument for that in retrospect looking back at everything just thinking you know what i just fell into python and pygame because that was what i that's what i was doing at the time and it just sort of it was a sublime sort of like i didn't think about it i just did it because that was what was most comfortable and i think you could probably make the argument that that's why i had a game to upload at the end and if it had been anything else that i had to download the client and check all the libraries double check on how this needs to be packaged and and how do i get it out to this target and oh to get out to android i actually have to have this uh, sdk installed okay well now i have to go do that all these things they pile up and whether you're doing it or just thinking about it you're not coding at that moment and that can be a problem so the the sub the sublime sort of like oh i'm just working on this python pie game thing without thinking about anything probably was what it, what was what made it possible for me in the end to f- finish the game whereas if it had been something else i i think it could have slowed me down severely enough to um to make it not happen okay a couple more nuts and bolts lessons here um keep it simple like i said in 2019 i i, I was i was very much intending to do open jam and i was doing a lot with lua at the time i still love lua and still do stuff with it but at the time i was i was steeped in lua and i thought well that's what i'll do and i had some great ideas i really did i have some cool ideas for like little game and uh after maybe i don't know probably just the first the first day i kind of realized and not the first full day like the first afternoon i realized that there was just no way i was going to get the game done you know like everything i was doing was it was just taking so long and i could just see the task list in my head of of it just compounding and compounding and compounding and i thought well maybe i can get it done if i stay up all night both nights and i started doing that and then i realized no it's not going to get done it is not going to get done cuz i just have like the ideas were were too complex and so i think for a game jam specifically, I think if you if you think about sort of the story of your game, you need pretty much like a one or a two beat story. Like you can skip the second act. Second act for for people who haven't been to film school is the longest act, right? The first first act is the inciting incident essentially. Third act is the resolution. Skip skip all the rest for a game jam. You, you don't have time for that part where there is, um, you know, exploration and wandering around and discovery. That's not the game jam game. Or if it is, that's no longer the second act, and that is your first and third act. The, the exploration is the story, and there's no inciting incident, and there's no resolution. It is just a game of discovery. And when you've discovered everything in the game, then the game's over. That's it. That's that. That was the third act. You know. So yeah, one or two beats. Stories, or or if you don't think in beats, then think in hooks. You know, you've got to have one hook for your game. Like, what's your game about? Oh, it's it's this. That's all it is. Like, it's it's a puzzle game. There, that that's your game. It, it's a not a platformer. It's a um, you know, it's it's a game about catching falling coins or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, that that's that's your whole game. You you don't have time for a story. You don't have time for a gimmick. You've you've got you you've got an elevator pitch except in this in a game jam your elevator pitch is the game you know traditionally your elevator pitch describes your game in a game jam your game is the pitch that you gave for it that's all you have time for and and that's okay and if you look at the games submitted to open game jam which you can do by the way itch.io slash jam slash open dash jam dash 2020 or something like that go to openjam.io you'll you'll find it um if, if you if you look at the submissions you'll you do see that these are very short games that they are one hook games and I, I don't mean they're necessarily short to play i mean some of them you could play all day i reckon um but but the the actual game itself, the story being told, is pretty much what you see in the thumbnail. You see that, and that's the game. Okay, so um, that's keeping it simple. Uh, the next the next one I would say is related, and that is um, you get one game mechanic. This is very strongly related to sort of the one hook, but but it's it's more specific, and that is that your game mechanic you, you get one, you get one trick, and it, or you get one. Um, well, yeah, you get one one. Feature. So 
in a game, you know, for in a big video game that you play for hours and hours and hours, you usually you start the game, and ideally through discovery, but a lot of times it's just through a, hey, here's your tutorial. Um, one way or another, you discover that you have some kind of power as a player. I, whatever it might be. It might be that you can pick up a crowbar and hit things with it, or it might be something cool, like you can inject um, uh, liquid into your arm, and now you have psychic, special psychic powers, or telekinetic powers, or it could be uh, you can stop time. Whatever, right? You, you discover this thing, and then you play for a little while, and then you discover through further discovery or, or through achievement, you you get some something else. You get a better power. You can stop time, and uh, now you can rewind it a couple of seconds. And that, that, that carries you for a while. You get to play that for a while. And then eventually you discover a new ability, and that's that you can fast-forward time as well. And then you meet the big boss who's got all of your abilities and then some ends them against you, that sort of thing. Sounds like a lot of fun, but in a Game Jam game, you get to do one of those things. You can freeze time. Now, you have to if that's your mechanic, you have to, of course, you have to build your game around that. But you don't get the, you can stop time and rewind it, or you can stop and rewind and fast forward. That That's too many mechanics. You get one mechanic. And frankly, that's all you'll need, I think, for a, a lot of the games that emerge from these things. In, in many of the cases, your player's most menacing opponent is the player. And that's what I kind of discovered while I was building my game. I had this idea of, oh, I'll have the computer um, disrupt the state of the game such that the player has to then respond, and it's a, it's a fight against sort of this impending doom. Well, that, that means that I have to program the computer now, and that's hard. Uh, you know, to 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 do it like a an AI, and I'm saying that with air quotes always because AI just to destroy a game board that's not really AI. But you know, you want to make it seem like an AI. You want to make it seem like something's happening behind the scenes. Well, that's a bunch of code that you're writing. It's a whole other function. It's a whole other class. Who knows? It's a it's a whole other thing that you have to do. And if you're doing that, then you're generating more lines of code, and more lines of code means that you're going to have to debug it at some point, or you're going to have to support it, or you're going to have to sort of monitor it as as your ideas change and so on. What I found was that when I was making when I was designing, you know, this this idea for a game was emerging, I I realized well, rather than having the evil AI, I can have the player sort of competing against the player and just have it sort of like, hey, how how good of a score can you achieve? And build it into the mechanic that, um, well, I can't really say a whole lot more without giving away too much about the game, so I'm not going to. But what I am going to say is that that one, you know, that one one mechanic concept is enough for a small game. Like, that's that's your hook, that's your mechanic, that's all you need. Whatever kind of suggestion of a story, plus the way that the game is played, that's one game. And it is exactly one game. It's not, it isn't your triple A game where there are mini games and there's different phases of development and stuff like that, you know, character development. No, it, it is one, it is exactly one game, but that's enough for an open game jam, I think. especially if you're a one-person team as as I. And I think finally, um, not probably not finally actually, so there's another thing about about sort of asset management which, especially, again, for a one-person team, I'm going to say, um, the, the fewer assets you have, the better. And and that's because assets have to get created. So if you're doing the open jam, the game jam, correctly, then I think you would meet people on in the chat who who are eager to contribute to your project, who don't want to do code, who, you know, they want to produce the music or the graphic. So if I'd done that correctly, and also if I'd had a fully formed idea going in, which I did, then I could have leveraged that and said, okay, you guys are in charge of the assets now, and that's fine. I didn't do that, and I composed the music myself, and I did all the graphics myself, such as it is. And you'll see what I mean if you ever play the game. And even the music, frankly, isn't entirely my doing. So I just made, like, I don't know, 12 or 14 sound files, and they're, like, six-second sound files. Th- that was Those were all external. That was the only external asset. Oh, the font file, which is an open-source font uh, library, uh, font font file. So those, And I didn't make that myself. Uh, but no, and no graphics. So it was really one font file and like 14 AUG files. And that's it. That's the, those were the assets that I needed. And it simplified things dramatically. It was, it was just something that I didn't really have to worry about, didn't have to think about. And that's, that's important. I mean, obviously, again, if you do a game jam correctly and you're meeting people and they're helping you with your project and so on, then maybe that isn't such a big deal. But for me, it, 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 it was key 
to keep those ass the asset requirements way way down. Okay, and then finally, I think the final one that I can think of from from this experience was to start from the beginning. It sounds weird, but the because again, because of the way that I kind of fell into this last minute, I'd already started sort of designing the game part of the project, and it wasn't until I was done the game that I sort of started realizing that there was kind of a wrapping around that game that I didn't really have, and that meant that for instance, there was no start screen. There was no, you know, nothing to tell you the title of the game at, at the very least, but more importantly, maybe, there was no way to for the player to configure how they wanted to play the game. Like, they, there's no, like, easy mode, normal mode, difficult mode. It was just, here's the game. And I thought about a little bit, I thought, well, maybe I could make it a launch a launch option. You know, you launch the game with dash dash this, dash dash that, and, and then you could, but I realize that that's not, you know, like that's, that would be fine, but it's just not what I wanted. That's not the game that I want to, to send out. I don't want people to have to know to do that. So a start screen would have been nice, a little bit of configuration, that sort of thing. And then I had no end, end screen either. So when you finish the game, it just, you just finish. And if you wanted to play again, you just had to close the window and relaunch. That was a little bit silly, especially since I was trying to make it a game and the only real gamification of the of the process, aside from just sort of the joy of having figured something out to some degree, was can you do it better next time? Can you get a higher score the next time? And in order for that to happen, I needed a leaderboard. I needed you to be able to see what your past performance was, and, and there was just none of that. So I had to refactor the you know a lot of the code in order to account for that to give myself an end screen. And I never did get around to implementing a start screen, but uh, at least I got an end screen and the ability to click to play again. So that that worked out well enough. And I guess maybe, maybe, maybe that was supposed to be the final one. I guess the final final one is though, uh, know when to quit. Like know when you've recognized the the ending. And um, I don't think it's maybe necessarily that big of a deal, but it was a little bit of a big deal for me. I had to I had to accept that I'd reached the end. I, I kind of, because there were a lot of other things that I wanted to do, but I think the turning point for me was on Sunday, I, I started thinking, I should, I should scrap all of this and rewrite it in processing or in Java. And at that point, I knew I was done. <laughs> because, like, if, if you're walking away from it so severely that you just think, I should rewrite the whole thing. I mean, that's going to be a whole other day of work, at least, for, for the exact same product. And that's not, I don't think, the spirit of the open jam. And so I I just decided that where I was was good enough. I had a couple of people play test it. I didn't find any egregious errors. And so I posted the thing and that was it. That was done. And the result has been a fun little game that I'm quite proud of. I think it's a fun little puzzle game. It's very relaxing. It's not high pressure or anything like that. Um, and and I think that's kind of how I, how I kind of... Sc- for me, that's how I justify the theme. Is airborne outside of infectious suggestions of infectious diseases being spread by airborne particles. Um, I think airborne is kind of relaxed and and happy and floaty. And so I thought, well, that's that's what this game is. It, musically and sort of process, it's it's airborne. So the game exists. I'm quite pleased with it. It was only. 340-ish lines of code, and that's non-optimized code. There's a little bit of cruft in there. Um, But it is, you know, it's good. It's nice, and if nothing else, it's a great prototype for something written in something else. More realistically, it's probably exactly what it is, and it'll just be there, and now I can say that I've done a game jam. I've contributed to an open-source game jam. I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm excited about it. It was a lot of fun. I may or may not do it ever again. I'm not sure if this is one of those things in in my life where it's just like I needed to do that that one time, or if it's something that I'll do some other time. Who knows? Um, but I do. I rec. I recommend it if you've ever thought, oh, I should do a game jam. I do recommend it. Um, but I also recommend not beating yourself up over it if you don't do it one year or if you start and then quit like that's i think that's okay too possibly i mean you know yourself better than i do probably uh, dear listener but i think it's you know go easy on yourself i think the spirit of the game jam is to is to enjoy yourself is to have fun and if it's not fun then maybe step away from it and come back to it the next year and see if maybe a different you know approaching it from a different angle might be better for you either way check it out openjam.io. Enjoy all the free open source games there. Talk to you next time.
you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. folks out there that we're all actually here and operating now. Those were just simulacra of us that were on before. <laughs>